consider the Lord's Prayer and the sixth petition. Um, we read in uh, Herman Witsius, he says this, a, a great reform, Dutch reform theologian. One thing is certain that no man can enjoy the delightful sense of his justification who does not earnestly seek his sanctification. Now, an important part of sanctification is the hatred and avoidance of sin. And what he means by that is no one can enjoy the benefits of being uh, pardoned from their sin without daily and striving to kill their sin. So in order for us to enjoy the benefits of being or of, of, of God uh, accepting us in Jesus Christ, we can enjoy that benefit, that delightful sense of knowing that now there is no condemnation between us and God without earnestly seeking to put away the old man, to put away death as far as our sin. And this morning, saints, and just like last time we were together in the Lord's Prayer, we were dealing with what's called sanctification. As we have read in the fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And that's not merely in the sense of forgive us our debts because we have sinned in Adam, our actual sin, but more so forgive us our debts because we continue to sin. Sin is something that we continue to do. And we must ask God daily to forgive our debts, to forgive our sin, because by no means can a Christian be a Christian and daily not ask God to forgive them of their sin. It just doesn't work that way. And likewise here, we see another important role of our sanctification, that is our growing in holiness, our growing in the likeness image of Jesus Christ. And that is, we ask God to not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This, like the other five petitions, is implying something about the Christian life. It's saying something without explicitly saying it. In other words, this sixth petition implicitly teaches us something about God and something about ourselves. And throughout this Lord's Prayer, I hope you have seen that each petition is not only giving us a model of how we are to pray, but also there's rich theology in here. Again, teaching us the two most important truths of the Christian faith, who we are and who God is. If there's anything that we must know about the Christian faith, it is who we are and who God is. For example... Last time we considered the Lord's Prayer, we were looking at the fifth petition, which says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. In this petition, we have learned something about ourselves. And what is that? That all Christians sin. It's presupposing that we sin and we sin daily and we need God to forgive us of our debts. But also, secondly, it teaches something about who God is, that we have a God who is willing and ready to forgive us. That God has decreed that when the believer asks for forgiveness, he will forgive them. And again, as we have seen, God forgives not on the basis of our forgiveness. So God doesn't say, this believer is crying out to me. And he's saying, forgive me, God. And based upon his tears, I will forgive him. But rather, based upon the merit and the blood of Jesus Christ, I will forgive them. So not something 
that we do, but rather something that God's Son has done. That's why, that's the basis, that's the ground of God's forgiveness. And this pattern implicitly teaches us about ourselves. Uh, and this pattern of implicitly teaching us about ourselves and about God is ever seen in the sixth petition. So what I want to do this morning is briefly give it, uh, an explanation and examination of the sixth petition. So briefly kind of consider what's going on. And then as we come to a close, I want to look at an example of the sixth petition in the life of Joseph uh, and his temptation. Let's first consider the sixth petition with two points. What is the temptation and who leads us into temptation? What is a temptation and who leads us into temptation? What is a temptation, saints? Well, in Scripture, there are two ways or two types of temptation. There's two types of temptation. One is from God and the other is from the world, the flesh and the devil. One is from God and the other is from the world, the flesh and the devil. Let's consider the temptation that's from God. The temptation that is from God should not be defined as a lure to do evil or to sin. Again, this temptation that is from God should not be defined as a lure to do evil or to sin. James says in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This temptation that James is speaking of is the temptation that lures or entices one to sin. And this cannot be said of God. For since God is good and no evil is found in God, he can't tempt others to do evil because that would be contrary to who he is. So when we say that there is a temptation that comes from God, it shouldn't be interpreted as meaning God lures people to sin. So what do we mean when we say that there's a temptation that comes from God? Uh, we mean to say that God, by his providence, puts believers to test or trial. God, in his providence, in his governing of the world, puts believers, a hard pill to swallow, right, to test or trial. And this testing or trial is strictly for the strengthening and the benefits of the Christian. And this test or trial that God puts us to is strictly for the strengthening and for the benefits of the Christian. We see this example for us in God's dealing with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, God did tempt Abraham, or he tested Abraham. That God told Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. And this tempting, this testing of Abraham was not to entice Abraham to do evil but was a holy trial of Abraham's faith. God was trying Abraham's faith. He was testing his faith. God was strengthening Abraham. And by grace, God was building Abraham's faith and trust. So this type of, or this first type of temptation uh, that we consider is the one that we must get right, is that God puts believers to test or to trial. He puts believers to the test. And mind you, when I even say that, we want to think that God puts believers to the test or a trial for his own sake, as if God is unaware if you will be faithful or not. We aren't to think that about God, and I hope you don't get that from what I'm saying, but rather, God puts believers to the test for your own benefit, 
so that you can see where you are in the spectrum of your trust and your faith in God. So it's not God that's learning something in your trial, but rather it's God putting you through the trial so that you can learn something about yourself. There's a second type of temptation, though, and it's from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this type of temptation, saints, simply put, is an enticing to sin and to commit evil. It's a enticing to sin and commit evil. Uh, Zacharias, your sinus, summarizes this distinction well. He says, temptation from God is a trial of our faith, piety, repentance, and obedience through the various oppositions and hindrances of our salvation. But the temptation from the world, the flesh, and the devil entice and solicit us to sin for the purpose of drawing us from God. So we can say that there's one temptation from God that draws us closer to God, but also there's another temptation from the world, flesh, and the devil that draws us away from God. But you can even say, though, the temptation that from the world, flesh, and the devil that draws us away from God in a lot of ways, in our repentance, draws us back to God. So we can say that in these temptations, they are always God-centered. Whether we do not commit the sin and we run to God, or whether we commit the sin and in repentance we run to God. Let's consider the second point, which is who leads us into temptation? Who's leading us into temptation? And the answer to the question lies in the text. Again, the verse reads, and lead us not into temptation. It's obvious from our text, it is God who leads us into temptation. It is God who leads us into temptation. And friends, this implies an essential truth of the Christian faith, does it not? I mean, we're all, hopefully, all reformed. Uh, we all are big sovereignty of God guys. And we know and we believe and we exhort and we say that all things come from God. But not only that, but God is in control of all things. Again, all things come from God. But also all things are controlled by God. That there is no outside forces other than God that controls the world and the dealings that happen in the world. But saints, when we, when we consider the sovereignty of God and this, and this petition, a question should immediately arise. Since we know that all things come from God, and we know that it is God who leads us into temptation, then does that mean that God would lead us into a temptation to sin? Again, since we know that everything comes from God and temptation comes from God, does that mean that God would lead us into a temptation to sin? Now, notice the way I'm phrasing the question. I'm not saying, would God lead us to sin? But rather, would God lead us into a situation where the devil and our flesh would work together to draw us away from God? Would he put us in the arena where we could be tempted to be drawn away from God? Would he do something like that? Would God lead us into a temptation in which we may sin? Is what I'm saying. Well, let's consider a few texts in the Bible. Deuteronomy 8.2. Moses says to the Israelites, Lord, your God has led you these 40 years into the wilderness that he might humble you. 
testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Here we see that Israel's wilderness wandering after Moses had led them out of Egypt was ultimately a test of their faith. And that the Israelites, as they were wandering for 40 years, were being humbled by God. Was the wilderness wandering a place, or rather was it an ideal place, where the Israels wanted to be? No. They just came from Egypt, having an abundance of everything they needed, to the wilderness, crying out to God that we're starving. So this was, in many ways, a negative trial. He put Israel into a negative situation. We see another example of this, of God, of God uh, leading men into temptation in Matthew chapter 4, when Christ, after his baptism, is led by the Spirit to do what? Into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. The Spirit led Christ into the wilderness for 40 days, where Satan tempted our Lord three times. He was hungry. He was weary. Satan is offering Christ what Christ needs in order for him to be sustained, which is food. And it's important to note, saints, that Christ's temptation was of a negative kind. Meaning, when God, by his spirit, led his son into the wilderness, Jesus didn't go into the wilderness with his guitar and sang songs and looked at the stars all day. He didn't, he didn't build a campfire and roasted marshmallows. But rather, this was a severe negative trying by God. He put Christ in a negative situation. From these two examples, we see that while God does not personally tempt others to sin, he does for the sake of refining us and strengthening our faith. He puts us in situations in which the devil is tempting to destroy us. That is clearly true. And that is a hard pill to swallow, is it not? That God would put us in the same room with the devil. And the devil does only one thing. And that is to destroy our faith, destroy us. We see this example clearly in the story of Joseph, do we not? In Genesis 50, after speaking of the wickedness of his brothers who sold him into slavery, he says to them in verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So what we have from Joseph is we have one event. Him being sold into slavery, that one event, it has a twofold intention. There's a twofold intention. Joseph being sold into slavery, it came from God. God decreed, he purposed for the foundation of the world that Joseph would be sold into slavery. It did not originate in the minds of his brothers, but rather it came from God. But it had a twofold intention. This one event in the intention of Joseph's brothers was to sell him into slavery, and they meant that for evil. But in God, his ultimate purpose for decreeing that Joseph would be sold into slavery was to strengthen the faith of Joseph. You see how you have one event, but you have two parties with different intentions. The brothers to commit evil 
to weaken the brother, Joseph. But also we see God in his ultimate purpose is to do what? To strengthen Joseph and his faith through being sold into slavery. And again, saints, this testing was a, a most negative testing, was it not? This was not fun to Joseph to be sold into slavery. So what we see, saints, is at times, God at times, puts believers in a most negative situation where Satan and our flesh are enticing us to sin. But God's purpose is for us to lean on him. His purpose in this is not to not for us to commit the act of sin, but for us to be strengthened, that we may trust in him. We may cling to him. Many of us know this type of testing all too well, do we not? Many of us know of this severe and negative temptation, these severe and negative situations that God puts us in because we encounter it every single day. And we can be tempted to ask, when we are being tempted in the most negative way, does God even love me? I mean, I can, I'm the first to attest to say that when I'm in a negative situation, I ask myself, God, what in the world am I doing in this situation? And do you love me? Does God really have my best interests in mind when I'm being put through this severe fire? And saints, the answer is yes. We have to say it's yes. That trials and temptations, although they are painful, severely painful, are for our good. And James, among others, gives us the proper perspective in which we are to view trials. He says in James chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy when you meet various kinds or trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That is very hard for us to say amen. <laughs> but it's true, is it not? According to James, the trials that we are met with are to produce in us steadfastness, which means a firm foundation. It means that we will be unwavered when a temptation presents itself, we can stand and we have the ability and a lot of times the courage to say no to the temptation. Isn't that the one thing we need a lot of times in the temptation is courage to say no. This is what uh, these trials do for us, saints. They, they, they produce us a steadfastness in which... Our feet are being planted more and more into the solid concrete cement of God's word and understanding who God is. These trials that God puts us through are to create in us an unwavering resolve. And that unwavering resolve is most clearly seen in the life of Joseph. We just learned about him and all the things that he went through from his brothers selling him into slavery to him being thrown into jail, much of Joseph's life was a temptation or test from God. But for our purposes this morning, and as we are coming to a close, I want us to briefly consider Joseph's great temptation with Potiphar's wife. And what we see 
And Joseph's temptation with Potiphar's wife is he teaches us two ways in which we can fight temptation. Isn't that the one thing or one of the one of many things that we want to learn in this Christian life is that is how can I fight sin? How can I fight temptation? As we know from our studies in Genesis, Joseph was brought was bought as a as a slave from the Egyptian Potiphar, who was captain of Pharaoh's guard. And in Genesis 39, we have recorded for us Joseph's temptation with Potiphar's wife. We pick up the story in verse seven. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He has not greater in this house than I am I. He is not greater in this house than I than am I. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. I think it's safe to assume that Potiphar's wife was absolutely beautiful. Absolutely gorgeous. And Joseph at this time of his life was a young man. And what that means for many of us, I know, there's things inside of him that are raging, (laughs) that are building up in him. And here she comes not just once, but verse 10 says day by day. Day by day to tempt Joseph to lie with her. So what this means is this wasn't a one-time deal. That Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph, tempts Joseph, Joseph says no, and she gives up. But rather, this was a constant temptation. It was a continual temptation that Joseph, every single day, was faced with. And he lived with her too. And friends, hear me now. Is this not very similar to the temptations that we face every day? Those temptations that seem to just always be there. That when we think that we are far away from those temptations, they always seem to just pop up. Whether it be us at home. Whether we be at work. Whether we be out and about. Or whether we be on our phones. These temptations, like Potiphar's wife, can even become more violent. As we will read in verse 11, when they are pulling us. They are tugging at our emotions to override what is good and what is true. I should not be doing this. But your emotions are saying, I want to do it because I want to do it overriding what is good, what is true. And all while what is good and what is true is slowly turning into what is evil and what is bad. What are we to do, saints, when we are faced with our temptations? Well, just like Joseph and just like Christ after him, we stand firm. And in standing firm, we are to remind ourselves who God is. 
Joseph says in verse 10, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If I lie with you, I will be sinning against God. Here, Joseph shows that he's a world-class theologian. A world-class theologian. Because Joseph understood the holiness of God. And Joseph understood the sinfulness of man. And he understood that sin is an offense to God. And sin disrupts our communion with God. Joseph knew that well. He understood that we, as image bearers of God, even if we are not saved, owe worship and obedience to God. Joseph understood that. And Joseph understood, because he is saved, my allegiance is to God, not to my emotions, and not to temptation, when temptation presents itself, but my allegiance is to God and Him alone. But we also see that Joseph is unmoved when he's presented with a temptation. Jonathan Edwards makes a most wonderful observation. He says, quote, this is just wonderful. His behavior was very remarkable under these temptations. And Jonathan Edwards will go on and say, mainly because he's a young man, hormones are raging, he should give in. He absolutely refused any compliance with them. And hear what he says here. He made no reply that manifested as though the temptation had gained at all upon him. What that means is, from his words, his, from his, from his rejection of the temptation, the outside external temptation could not stick to him eternally. Isn't that what temptation does to us? We see something and internally we are moved and then we act upon the thing that we see. There was no Velcro that the temptation could stick to internally. And then he says, Jonathan Edwards, so much as to hasten about it or even to deliberate upon it. He complied to no agree. What Jonathan Edwards is saying is when Joseph was presented with a temptation, he didn't weigh out his options. That's remarkable, is it not? He didn't put sinning against God and I rather bang God and sleeping with Potiphar's wife on the weighing scale. To see which one outweigh the other. He didn't deliberate and say, maybe I could or could not get away with it. He didn't reason that way. He didn't allow his temptation to have a conversation with him. Isn't that what sin does? Sin through the temptation speaks to you. It talks to you. It causes us to reason on whether we should give in or not. No one has spoke of this better than Augustine when he's battling his own temptation. Hear this. And here Augustine is, is really speaking from the vantage point of sin talking to him when he's going through temptation. He says, they plucked at my garment of flesh and whispered, are you going to dismiss us? From this moment, we shall never be with you again. Habit was too strong for me when it asked, do you think that you can live without these things? Isn't that what temptation does? It says to us, are you really going to say no to me? And if you say no to me this one time, I may never be in your presence ever again. 
you may never see me again. Do you really want to throw away our relationship? But Joseph did not allow his temptation to have a word or thought. He didn't allow his temptation to have a thought. And saints, this is what we are to do. When temptation arises, we are not allow it to speak. Do not allow it to speak to you. Do not allow it to further entice you so that you may reason to the temptation. But also Joseph gives us another way to fight temptation. And that is found in verse 11 through 12. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out the house. Again, Jonathan Edwards makes a wonderful insight at this point. He says of Joseph, he, and, and here this, this is really remarkable. He had rather lose his garment than stay a moment there where he was in danger of losing his chastity. He rather lose his garment than rather stay there and lose his purity, lose his virtue, lose his godliness. We can even expand that, can we not? And say that Joseph would rather lose a piece of his clothing than lose communion with God. Joseph would rather lose a piece of himself, his garment, rather than losing all of himself. He says, you can have this, a garment, which is an accidental feature of us. (laughs) You don't need to have a garment in order for you to be human. But Joseph's saying, you can't have all of me. You can't have my being. Saints, this is what Jesus tells us, does he not? That if your right hand is causing you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away. It is better to enter heaven with one arm than hell whole. Joseph, at this moment, when he goes out of the house when he runs out. At this moment, he's so unlike Peter. Who, when Christ said to his disciples at the night of his arrest, all of you will fall away. What does Peter say? I will never fall away. I will never, I will never desert you, God. Friends, what's the difference between Joseph and Peter? Peter forgot who he was. And Joseph knew all quite well who he is. What that means is Peter thought that he was strong. In reality, he was weak. And Joseph knew very well that he was weak. And this, saints, is how we must fight temptation When it presents itself, simply put, we run out the house. When temptation temptation presents itself, we run out the house. I think of a story when I'm chasing my son through the house. And a lot of times when my son runs from me, he goes to an area where where we're still in vision with one another. He can still see me. And that's not how we would view temptation or sin. 
to run so far away where we can't, we, we can't even imagine where our temptation of sin may be. We run out of the house. We must flee from it. Why? Because saints, if you don't know this, let me break it to you. You are weak. All of us are weak. Very, very weak. And without divine aid, and a lot of times with divine aid, we do fall. Let us pray, saints, that in the midst of our temptation, that God will grant us legs to run so that temptation will not leave its smell upon us and we cannot follow the smell back to its original source. As we come to a close, saints, how must we live in light of this lesson? Well, we can talk about the daily need to mortify our flesh, and that is put to death our flesh. We can talk about the daily need to uh, kill sin and kill sin daily, right? How we need to create in us a, a habit of virtue. We can't talk about those things. But saints, it's important to note that the Christian life is a life where we daily need grace. We daily need grace. And we don't need grace primarily for us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we need grace to continue to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that ever more apparent when we are in the midst of temptation? Saints, the one thing that's going to get you out of temptation is Jesus Christ and him alone. And so when I say run out of the house, well, where are you going to run to? Run to the cross. Remind yourself of Jesus Christ and that it was that sin that was tempting you that put that man on the cross. And will you love, as Samuel Rutherford has once said, will you love the sin that cut our Christ more than Christ himself? Will you love the sin that put our Christ on that cross more than Christ himself? Saints, when we are in the midst of temptation, what we are to do is we are to ask God to deliver us from this temptation, that he will preserve us, that when we're in the midst of it, when we're in the fire, we pray to God and say, God, I know that I am here for my faith to be strengthened. Don't let me fall. And we read from the word of God that God does not give anything to his saints that his saints cannot handle. And what that means is, God knows you can do it. You can succeed. Trust in God. Believe in the gospel. And saints, when temptations arise as we close, remember the words of Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That confidence and drawing near to the throne of grace is simply praying to God. And as we pray to God, God will give us divine assistance when we need divine assistance. Let's pray.